Before we get going, we're asking you, our faithful Scrum listeners, to predict the results of the most exciting Massachusetts primary elections, which, as you know, are going down on September 9th. The person who pulls off the best impression of Nate Silver will get to crow about their accomplishment on a future edition of the Scrum. That alone should be incentive enough to participate, but you'll also get a one-of-a-kind handcrafted Scrum t-shirt if you do better than everyone else. To participate, just visit blogs.wgbh.org slash scrum. I'm WGBH News reporter Adam Riley, and this is the Scrum Podcast for Wednesday, August 27, 2014. Each week on the Scrum, we talk about politics and media from Boston to the Beltway. And this week, David Bernstein, Peter Kadzis, and I are kicking those topics around with retired Congressman Barney Frank, who, as you likely know, served Massachusetts in the House of Representatives for more than three decades before he retired in 2013. Congressman, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Congressman Frank, I want to ask you, uh, we are approaching the 40th anniversary of the first school year following Judge Garrity's uh, busing order. You were in the Kevin White administration at that time. I'm wondering what memories you have from September 1974. What stands out in your mind? It is obviously a very uh, important date. I was actually not working for the mayor at the time. I had gone. I had uh, left him actually at the end of 1970, and by 1974, I was involved. I was a member of the state legislature uh, from Boston. Interestingly, I was representing the only district, I think, in Boston where there were no public schools by then, or there was uh, was Back Bay and Beacon Hill. They had closed the two schools in the uh, in, in the area, and um, but I do remember it as a uh, a very tough time emotionally. Um, on the one hand, there were very disappointing uh, evidences of hatred and prejudice on the part of some, but there were also people who were motivated, motivated primarily by concern for their children and and and, and turmoil. There were fears. Uh, um, uh, that uh, some of them were justified, most weren't, but that didn't make them any of the less important. I will say, from the 40-year perspective, uh, one of the things that shows that you can see progress and things can get better, race is no longer an important predictor of how people are going to vote in Boston elections. Um, I went to work for Kevin White in 67 when racial polarization was the central issue uh, Whites who thought blacks were being too pushy versus uh, whites who sympathized with some black concerns and blacks. Uh, by the last mayoral election, uh, you had two very decent candidates, Marty Walsh and John Connolly, competing with each other for black votes at no cost to themselves in, in uh, places like South Boston. So um, as, as traumatic as it was for a while, it is a nice sign that things have gotten better. You know, that, that, that's interesting because I kind of had the same I, – I found myself very surprised – that we still don't have, have not had a black, you know, minority mayor elected. You know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I certainly would have thought so. And I know Mayor Menino thought that he would be, you know, privately, that he would be the last before a minority. I tend to agree with you that it's not a sign that of the ongoing division. It's a sign that that actually it doesn't matter as much anymore. Two things. First, Boston's African-American population has been smaller than a lot of other big cities. By the way, that's an important sociological fact. There was this conservative myth that black people left the South and came north to get high welfare checks, that that was the attraction or that that's why people moved here from Puerto Rico. In fact, the pattern of uh, people moving, minorities in particular, 
was to get jobs that were relatively low-skilled because they hadn't been given the chance to acquire skills and paid well. That's why the big migrations were in Detroit and Cleveland and Chicago, Great Lake cities which had steel and, 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 and uh, glass and, and rubber factories. Massachusetts has always had high welfare rates compared to a lot of other states, mm-hmm. but relatively low in migration because that wasn't the major motivation. Right. Uh, and so as a vote, we still don't have that same uh, uh, turnout. The other thing is that some of my friends on the left have a overly romanticized notion that uh, African Americans, Asian Americans, and Hispanics will all vote together. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so the they talk about color, this is right? a majority-minority yeah. city, but it has three groups that have a lot of issues somewhat in common, actually the Asian Americans less so uh, in some ways. But, um, uh, but it was also, I think, what you suggested, Peter, uh, African Americans do not feel the need in self-defense to go out and elect one of their own because there have been, beginning really with Kevin White, um, mayors who, who were sympathetic. Yeah. yeah. Peter Kansas, you want to hop in here? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a big myth that, you know, the, the minority vote is monolithic. I mean, in, in this last mayoral election, you really saw, you know, the small business owners, the sort of, you know, what sociologists might have once called the petite bourgeoisie in the black community voted for Conley. And, you know, Walsh got the, the more unskilled laborers. And um, uh, the, the small business owners in the African-American community were staunchly behind Conley. I mean, I covered busing as a kid when I was a young reporter at The Globe and the now defunct and scrappy public housing news. And um, if, if you put busing aside for a second, the very nature of Boston is so completely different from the one I grew up in in Dorchester. Absolutely. And by the way, on the... Uh um, uh, on, on the, uh, the uh, point about the voting, what you had, I think people, even the most sophisticated of the African-American leadership, understood that both Connolly and Walsh were so well-intentioned and, and mm. so devoid of any negative racial feeling that I know because I got elected in 1972 to the legislature. It was really the beginning that same year of the emergence of, of significant black political power in the regular system because Mel King and Doris Bunty and and others got elected that year. And I've remained, and I'm very happy to say, I'm very, I've remained very friendly and have been allied with the African-American leadership. And I know that they were consciously debating and finally decided, many of them, to go for Walsh because they thought this was a good chance to demonstrate that as a, a, a group they had voting power. And what what's key is that the relative benevolence, not the relative, but the benevolence on race-related issues of both candidates gave them the luxury of making it a strategic decision rather than a reflexive emotional one. I wonder, do you think that that the myths about cities, both on the right or left, has had a result in Washington in terms of how how Washington has failed to help the cities, you know, uh, at certain times, you know, I think particularly in the Reagan administration, really in the last, you know, Well, part of it was, yeah, somebody's going to book out, I just saw the copy, The Undeserving Poor. Mm. Uh, reflecting not his own view, but the notion that you know it's it's poor people's own fault. Although I always remember the great Shavian line, George Bernard Shaw, from My Fair Lady, where he lies. His father confronts uh, uh, the Rex Harrison character, who says he was helping the deserving poor, and indignantly says, "Well, us undeserving poor have to eat too, you know." Yeah. <laughs> and um, but I, I think, uh, yeah, there was that. There's also the racial uh, antagonism. Uh, 
And then there was also, though, if you look, I mean, there when, but I think it's even more one of the most disturbing trends in America today, which is the increasing unpopularity of government, the constant, yeah. uh, uh, the, 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 the kind of, oh, it's, it's, it's fashionable to denigrate government. And when we had active government, cities did well. There were a lot of city programs, not all of them well thought out. Um, cities have suffered now uh, as part of a general political trend to, 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 to reduce funding for common activity. Congressman, I want to ask you, to what extent do you think President Obama has helped foster that growing distrust of government, lack of faith in government? Could he have done anything differently? Yeah, I, by and large, he's, he's worked against it. And I, I, although I, he bought into one aspect of it early on, I think he overcame that. And it, it, it's, it's combined with a kind of government's bad and it's because squabbling politicians are a part of it. And the, the, the worst thing President Obama ever said in my mind, he said in 2008, and I should say I was for Hillary Clinton at the time, when he said that if he became president, he was going to govern in a post-partisan manner. And I said at the time to some of his people that knowing how right-wing the Republicans had been and how they would take advantage of that, uh, that he gave me post-partisan depression when he, uh, <laughs> w- when he said that. Was that naivete or arrogance or some combination of the I two? I think it was naivete. He had not come. Uh, he, he had served in Illinois. He'd only had a couple years in, 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 in Washington. And it was also... Things weren't quite as bad then, but they were, you know, there were, you go back to Senator Chuck Percy and, and some others in Illinois, and, you, you know, even in Everett Dirksen, who was uh, uh, ideologically somewhat conservative, but also infinitely transactional when it came to uh, getting things done. Um, and I, I think that was a part of it. And um, uh, there were things he, he uh, by the way, I, I am more critical of Bill Clinton in that regard, whom I, am, whom I admire tremendously, but I thought... Again, my my worst memory of Bill Clinton is his standing up at a State of the Union address <clears throat> and saying the era of big government is over. I said to one of his aides, when was that? Did I sleep through that? When was this era of, of big government? We're talking 1933. Um, but, um, yeah, they have, for instance, the president has uh, boasted of the fact that government has shrunk and that we have fewer employees. And I, I, I'm a great believer in free speech. I let people say whatever they want about sex and everything else. But I would like to say, look, you cannot say I shrunk government. You have to say, thanks to me, there are many fewer firefighters. Because of me, we are not monitoring the cleanliness of the water or the purity of the food. Um, And there are many, many more students per class uh, because there is no such thing as government. It's the specifics. On the other hand, the president was an active and successful advocate of the best expansion of public services that we've had in a very long time. Clinton meant well, but didn't have the votes to do that. I think the uh, the, 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 the financial reform bill, obviously I'm proud of that personally, health care, uh, expanding the rights of women to sue when they'd been discriminated against economically, and some other things. Uh, the, the two years when Obama had a Democratic Congress are among the most productive in terms of uh, good public policy uh, that we've seen in a very long time. Speaking of a democratic Congress, you know, if if one is to rely solely on the mainstream media, the assumption seems to be that the Democrats will lose control of the Senate. Um, I'm not sure if that's true, but I'd be really curious what your take on that is. I am obviously hopeful that it it won't happen, and I'm I'm not an active politician. Remember when I was in politics, people would ask me, people in your profession, to make predictions about these things, and I would say, but. Does it not occur to you that 
I'm not going to give you an honest answer because <laughs> for me, I'm trying to influence the results. I'm not. An, uh, why would you ask me a question when you know I'm so biased? Well, let me reframe Peter's question. Then. Well, I, 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 I think it's inspiring. Well, but, so. but he's a sage now. Yeah, I'm less. <laughs> I am less so, and less likely to be quoted that way. I think it is the, the odds. Are, I, I, if I were told I had to bet everything I owned, I would. I would bet on the Republicans. On the other hand, I think it's a very narrower case, and the most prudent thing to do would be to say no. I hear you know, people like Mary Landrew and Mark Pryor are, are doing well. Um, the economy is getting better. Uh, there may or may not be any, any kind of results to that. Let me put it this way. If, if the September 1st, October 1st, and November 1st job reports are all very, very good ones, uh, uh, I think it, it's uncertain. Just to follow up on Peter's question, what happens if the GOP does control both houses? Public policy-wise, well, you get a consideration of uh, a continuation of of, of uh, gridlock. They will. No bill is going to pass over the president's objection. And by the way, thanks to their insistence, it still takes sixty votes to pass a bill in the Senate as opposed to confirm a nominee. I wish that weren't the case. I would. I think the filibuster was an outrageous uh, traduction of democracy and contributes to the gridlock. Uh, Part of the frustration is nothing ever happens, and that's because we have de facto amended the Constitution, which really foresaw majority votes in most cases. Um, but um, the danger is that the Republicans will add to appropriations bills writers that will be problematic uh, and, and hinder the president's ability, probably in the immigration area. Um, they may try to do that in the financial reform area, but I think they— that I, I just think that politically, with an election coming up, going to the defense of derivatives being engaged in by the foreign branches of American banks, I don't think anybody wants to run on, on, on that issue with the, the exception of, say, Ted Cruz and a couple of the right-wingers in the House. And again, they will talk about trying to – you know, well, here, here's the real problem. They complain about what the president did unilaterally in the health care bill, but everything he did they want done. I mean, it's like they're beating him up for doing it, but it is very hard to think that they're going to reimpose or insist that some of these things that he did to alleviate stress go forward. The one thing that terribly troubles me about this is um, we have a Supreme Court very balanced. We have four very, very conservative justices, mm -hmm. uh, three total extremists, Roberts close to it. If Kennedy leaning conservative but occasionally open up his way, you have four more liberal justices. Um, there are several justices in their late 70s and early 80s, Kennedy, Scalia, and Ginsburg, and Breyer, two on each side. If one of them leaves the court, uh, if the Republicans have the majority, it means that Obama will not get the chance to replace that justice, and that will go over to 2016. That is the, you know, even if one of them leaves, uh, you still need 60 to confirm a justice, but I think that that kind of pressure might be doable. So that's the one area where I am where I am particularly concerned that a a vacancy will occur. Obviously, you won't get a bad one, but you'll 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 go uh, light one justice until uh, 2017. Uh, speaking of justices, just uh, um, uh, you know, we may have uh, same sex marriage heading there pretty soon. Yeah. I, I've thought for a long time personally that uh, you know I thought Kennedy um, basically has. You know, since the Lawrence decision has has realized that the Lawrence decision meant that ultimately same sex marriage would 
you know, because that argument was being made at the time, you know, by the opponents. You know, if you do this, then it ultimately leads. Uh, what do you think the odds are, you know, if it does go to the Supreme Court in the next session? Well, first, I, I, it doesn't logically lead to that. It, it is perfectly possible to have different arguments. I think it's just Kennedy's general view that, that this discrimination is wrong. Uh, uh, that, that's there. I think the answer is this. <clears throat> My own guess, I, I now just speculate, is that Justice Kennedy... Maybe Ruth Bader Ginsburg would rather this wait a year or two. That is, I think it was clear that we were moving towards the Supreme Court doing this, but there is a problem with it being done prematurely. I think a lot of people were surprised that district court judges moved as quickly as they did and that some circuits said okay. So my guess is that what Justice Kennedy is now trying to think about, maybe discussing this with a couple of his sympathetic colleagues, is how do we postpone this? Uh, how do we how do we make this wait? I do have to say it's not a political problem. There was a, I'll tell you, there was a wonderful lawyer on behalf of LGBT causes who gets too little attention. She's local. Her name is Mary Bernardo. Oh yeah, she is the sure. Thurgood Marshall of the gay and lesbian movement. Hmm. And I, I admire David Boys and I admire Ted Olson, but it troubles me to see them getting the kind of credit that really belongs to Mary Bernardo, who is a brilliant lawyer and a wonderful political tactician. And I will tell you this: she and I talked. I mean, she talked to other people about the most important lawsuit we've gotten recently, which was the invalidation of the Defense of Marriage Act on equal protection grounds. And she consciously held off filing that case. Right. It could right. only have been filed in Massachusetts at the time because only we yep. had the marriage, until after the 2008 election. Yep. That was a yep. perfectly reasonable thing to do. Yep. Uh, you know, and, and, and timing is, uh, is the issue. So I, mean, I, I think it's fairly clear the courts are going are gonna, to, uh, Kennedy's going to invalidate it. <clears throat> But I, as I said, I, I think they're hoping they can find some way to wait a year. Have yeah. you been surprised at the speed with which both public attitudes about and legal restrictions concerning uh, same-sex marriage have changed? Yes, and not just here, but for 42 years. In 1972, I filed the first <clears throat> gay rights bill in Massachusetts history. Uh, it had to do with what I thought was the least controversial, removing the criminal penalties against private consenting adult sex. I got, I think, 11 votes out of the 240-member House uh, for it. And so I've been working on this for the past 44 years, 42 years. I have, if at any point during that period you would ask me what would be the state of our political and legal position three years later, I would have been too pessimistic. This has moved more rapidly than any major social movement I can. And, yeah, I was, look, come, uh, and not just me, in October of 2012, there were very few of us in this fight who were predicting that we would win all four of the referenda that year. And uh, it's moved so quickly. I think the, the most interesting datum is this. When a district court judge in Pennsylvania ruled against same-sex marriage, the conservative Republican governor of Pennsylvania, Tom Corbett, who was up for re-election this year, said, I am not appealing this. I don't like it. But that's what the court said. And the reality was he did not want this issue in his election. What's happened is within a literally a 10-year stretch from when George Bush was trying to do a constitutional amendment and Mitt Romney was demagoguing it, same-sex marriage has, become, has gone from being a wedge issue against the Democrats to a wedge issue which terrifies the Republicans. Peter Kansas, mm-hmm. you get the last question. Um, I wanted to ask about the Middle East. Um, which is um, extremely complicated. Um, how would you rate Obama's handling and 
that sort of facile question aside, what real options do you see him having? Well, the answer to the very good second question is the answer to the first. I think he's done the best he can in a tough situation. I have this uh, challenge. I wrote in the column I write for the Sunday Portland paper for all these people who say he should do more. For how long? Mm. And what do they have in mind? Here's, here's the, the, the key to me. The Wall Street Journal, which is among the lead in the let's go back in there, you're too weak. They had an editorial a couple of weeks ago on a Saturday and said, Kerry did a good job trying to mediate Afghanistan, but he can't undo Obama's mistake of withdrawal. What Obama needs to do is to make the kind of commitment in Afghanistan that America made in Korea and Europe. That is 61 and 67 years of a troop presence, respectively. And, of course, that same argument applies to Iraq. What these guys want is for America to be there forever. At least they're being uh, honest about it. Yeah. Well, I don't know, I don't know if they realize that because I, I yeah. put the numbers in there in, 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 in my column. And the answer is, look, the American military is very capable. They can stop bad things from happening. They can't make good things happen. I, I wish I didn't have to, but I did agree that the intervention to keep some people from being murdered by ISIS was a good idea. But that's about it. We cannot go in there and, and fix things. And uh, these people blame Obama. I'll give you another example. I was doing a Meet the Press about a year ago. And uh, people on before us were talking about the, the Middle East, about Syria. And one woman, distinguished commentator, I forget her name, said, well, I have to give, uh, I have to blame Obama because he's allowed Assad to be a major factor in Syria. Assad is the president of Syria. He had been long before Obama came around. We didn't make him this. So there was this massive overestimate of what America can do. Fortunately, and I would add this, it's also an overestimate of why it's important to us. From the moral standpoint, yes, I would like to help out. But I'd like to get rid of Mugabe in Zimbabwe. I wish Saudi Arabia was a decent place to live if you believed in human rights. You have to differentiate. And I don't think we can use our military force to fix everything. And so my, I, 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 let me close with this in response. I'm a great uh, follower of a wonderful 20th century philosopher named Henny Youngman. <laughs> and he had this, uh, this great uh, couplet, how's your wife compared to what? <laughs> and that had become my mantra in public policy, compared to what? Because I don't have the luxury of, of, of creating a whole new world. So my, my question is, John McCain or... or Lindsey Graham, Kelly Ayotte from New Hampshire who supports them. You don't like what Obama's doing? Compared to what? And compared to what? The only other alternative is, the only alternative, to speak good English, is that you have an ongoing, indefinite, multi-billion dollar a year American military commitment to try and create in countries uh, a political structure that's favorable to us that can't sustain itself without us. All right. That is going to do it for this week's Scrum. Uh, Congressman Barney Frank, thank you very much for being here. You're welcome, Good. As I mentioned earlier, we're instilling a little competition among Scrum listeners in our first ever primary challenge. To learn more, visit our website, blogs.wgbh.org slash scrum. When you're there, please submit your predictions for the September 9th primaries. If you like what you hear on The Scrum, and we're sure you do, please subscribe in iTunes. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Our team includes WGBH political analyst David Bernstein and WGBHnews.org senior editor Peter Kadzis, along with producer Abby Ruzica and engineer Alan Mattis. 
We had help this week from web producer Brendan Lynch. I'm WGBH News reporter Adam Riley. 